This is their new hoax. But you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're all feeling the impact of coronavirus. Today, Qantas stood down 20,000 people, and of course, they're joining a long list. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Welcome to Nursing Review's new podcast. Each episode, we'll look at a different aspect of the pandemic, tackling myths, talking research, and keeping you informed. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost... My name is Connor Burke, and this is the Nursing Review Coronavirus Podcast. This week, I'm joined again by virologists from the University of Queensland, Dr. Ian McKay. Ian, how are you doing? Good, thanks. First off, how's things up in Queensland in isolation still? Uh, they're all pretty much going okay. A strange story just breaking on the news today of uh, an aged care facility with a case uh, and a healthcare worker. So that's going to be something to watch, I think, over the coming days. But otherwise, we're doing really well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking in a week... Um, it's the uh, 15th of May, uh, a week where most of the states around the nation have started to ease lockdowns and restrictions. Uh, and Ian, one story that has me interested for several reasons has children in mind. Um, one of the things lots of governments around the world and commentators, especially here, are stressing is that kids are fine to go to school. They can't get it. They can't pass it. But there have been increased instances of a disease called Kawasaki disease. Uh, many nurses out there listening might already know about this, but it affects mostly children and is a condition that causes inflammation of the walls of some blood vessels in the body and can be particularly nasty. Um, Ian, I believe Lancet have published some stuff on this uh, in the UK, US, US, France and Italy all have cases and they are linking it to COVID-19. Um, Ian, have you read about this and, and what do you know about it? Yes, I have. And you're right. It's an inflammatory disease, which fits with what SARS-CoV-2 can do. It's quite an inflammatory virus. It triggers a lot of that. It also fits with the fact that SARS-CoV-2 travels right around the body and its receptors are attached to all sorts of cells, including the, the respiratory system, obviously, but the cardiovascular system as well, and in some respiratory tissues as well. So there's a chance that the virus can bind to a whole range of different tissues and organs in our body. So if we have a serious infection where there's lots of virus, a high viral load, it's probably not surprising that it gets into the bloodstream and then can do some of this inflammatory activity within that cardiovascular system. We're not really seeing it as Kawasaki disease per se, as I understand it. It presents similar to, but a bit different from, with lots of inflammation in a systemic kind of way. But the key thing here is it's still very rare. Mm -hmm. Are these cases, are they in children that have been asymptomatic or children who have had COVID-19 and then seemingly recovered? Or do you know anything there? They have been diagnosed with COVID, and my understanding is they have had symptomatic disease. They haven't been asymptomatic, but mm -hmm. uh, I think we've still got some things to learn in this space. Yeah, so this is this kind of goes against some of the stuff that says, you know, it's not dangerous for kids because it, you know, it might be rare, but then it seems like if they get it, then they will have um, serious consequences afterwards. And, and I, I believe like we're lucky in a sense that we can almost see into the future because a lot of things that are happening to nations are coming to us a bit later because of how the disease has spread around the world. Should this have us thinking twice about schools opening? Um, what is your view on, on this and, and kids in general? Like, Do they transmit if they don't get it as much? What, what should we think about there? I like that. It's a, it's a view into the future. We do sit in a lucky position here. We have very few cases and we can see what's going on in the world where there are lots of cases. And because this is rare, we haven't really seen it in Australia, but we can watch it happen elsewhere. 
Um, I think schools can open. I think we've seen the kids don't get that sick, but there is very little doubt that they do get infected. They have similar viral loads to what adults have. Uh, they just don't seem to get all that ill for some reason that we still haven't really nailed down. So there's a good chance that if the virus is out there, they will be part of the transmission chain, but it still seems that for some reason they're not a big part of that transmission chain. It may just be that we haven't tested children enough because they're not sick, mm. and we always have this bias of looking at sick people yeah. as the first sort of cab off the rank. So, so what is the thinking there that, um, you know, if they're not getting sick too much or not getting it too much, but the odd chance that they do get it, they can still pass it to adults, right, who then are vectors of the, the uh, virus? That is the issue. The teachers and, and carers uh, could be exposed to virus from these children. Even though the children aren't ill, they could still uh, be getting cases. So it will be a case initially of with the slow, staged or ramping up of school attendance that we keep an eye on the adults as, I guess, the sentinel chickens, if you like, or the canaries mm-hmm. in the coal mine. Uh, to watch and see if they become ill and then we'll have a better idea of what's going on in schools. But because we have so few cases as a nation, Mm. we may not see a lot of this. Um, For me, again, you know, I I still think, I think this is part of a a thing that's going around here because we've been so lucky and partly because we've been good at what we've done so far to flatten the curve. But some people aren't quite sure still that disease is that bad. But for me, looking at this... um, almost Kawasaki disease, it it highlights to me the effects that might arise as we go six months or a year down the line that we really don't know about. Um, one virologist <laughs> I read detailed his trouble with it. He, um, he I think he studied Ebola and HIV and he didn't get either, but he's he's got this and he's struggled for seven weeks or so afterwards. He got pneumonia and all sorts of other things like that. And, and we're seeing a lot of data um, from people who have seemingly recovered in um, brackets and then they are dying later on and people are thinking that maybe they, you know, this is the result of COVID-19 and the, the things it does. Um, this really kind of highlights to me how little we actually know about the disease, Ian. I think to me it also highlights how little we know about a lot of other respiratory virus diseases. We're hypervigilant, really tightly focused on this particular one, but we've kind of forgotten that all these other viruses can, again, in rare instances, cause all sorts of strange outcomes that we see the case studies for in the literature, but it's just at the moment we're really focused on this one because it's all happening everywhere all at once. So there are lots of weird-looking things, but they are all rare, so we're probably not going to see a lot of this in Australia unless we have some return to massive case numbers, but we can certainly uh, look at the literature and see that even though they're happening very infrequently, they possibly do happen in some other virus infections as well. We just don't really uh, have a good grasp of that. Another story that has piqued my interest uh, was coming out of the US. Uh, as per the Sydney Morning Herald, um, new modelling by Minnesota researchers in the US of, um, of the pandemic have showed that social distancing isn't effective as initially expected in reducing deaths and infections. They do see that it will help protect the state from the you know, the infectious virus itself. But initial models were based on estimates that stay-at-home orders would reduce the disease and transmission by 80%, but modelling released recently has shown that it's only reduced it by 59%. Um, and that says to me, I'm, I'm wondering kind of where the initial idea of 1.5 metres here has come about. It's different um, meterage in other countries, but um, what does it tell you, Ian? Uh, a couple of things. The 1.5 metres is, is an arbitrary figure. We know that droplets can be propelled further than that, and floating dried down droplets can certainly hang around in the air until they impact or, or inhaled or blow away. So 1.5 is a good starting point, and just from observation, it seems to be quite effective most of the time, but we probably need to know, to know more about that particular instance. In Minnesota, I think the issue could be that the populace hasn't really stayed as far apart from each other as would 
we would have liked them to have. Cell phone travel data shows that perhaps they have been moving around a lot more than they really should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that would suggest that perhaps there has been more opportunity for them to spread in lockdown or isolation hasn't been quite as effective as it could be. But it's worth remembering that every model is a starting point and it's based on the data that we have to handle from the past and they change. And in fact, this model has only just changed uh, to, to get this new news story in the Sydney Morning Herald and being updated with more recent information that's happening in Minnesota rather than the stuff that was happening in China before. So models are a good guide, but they shouldn't be taken as uh, the absolute best and most truthful statement in the Mm. world. Mm -hmm. And talking about kind of staying at home and um, keeping away from each other, we are coming into our traditional flu season and something that I've been thinking about as um, I've never... considered um, flu and colds in this way before but um, when I've got a cold and flu in the past I've just thought about me just catching it. I've never thought of the way I catch it from who I catch it where I catch it but I guess a lot of people are now thinking about that but are we likely to see um, you know a lessening of the the flu season this year I know we've had a couple of bumper years in the last five years Um, we're all at home are we going to catch the flu? Very unlikely to. At the moment, the flu numbers in Australia have just bottomed out. They crashed once we went into isolation. And it's been really impressive to watch. And strangely enough, I've had a look today at some other respiratory viruses, perhaps not strangely enough, all of the enveloped viruses have also really fallen off a cliff in terms of the number of cases being detected in laboratory numbers. But a couple of them haven't. The adenoviruses and the rhinoviruses are still out there circulating, which is really interesting. And I think there's something to that, which I don't, I can't explain right now. Mm-hmm. They're not enveloped viruses like coronas and, and flu, but they're, so they may be a little bit more hardy. Perhaps they can last for longer on surfaces and they're easier to pick up. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it's really interesting that those viruses are still out there when isolation is clearly knocked on the head just about everything else that has an envelope. Mm, and uh, another kind of offshoot of that, I wondered, as I you know, selfishly stay indoors and worry about my own health, I'm thinking as I'm staying in and I consider that you know, that's the way to avoid colds and flu in the future. But does our kind of immunity, does our, um, how well our body reacts to cold and flu, is that going to go down? And uh, are we going to be more susceptible to these in the future as we maybe miss this season and the new strains that come out? That's a good question. And I think we don't really have a good answer for that yet. What we don't tend to think about a lot is that we are constantly challenged by respiratory viruses and infrequently do we become sick. We sort of say, oh, I never get sick. And that doesn't mean we don't get infected. We do get infected by viruses a lot, and that's shown in all sorts of studies. Pretty much from the minute we are born, we're infected by viruses, but we don't always have symptoms for that. But they do trigger our immune system. They educate our immune system, especially that antiviral arm of it. So it will be interesting to see what happens when we come out of isolation and start sharing our viruses again. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Ian? Has any um, research piqued your interest? In particular, there's just been a paper that's come out recently, and it's in the New England Journal, uh, looking at COVID in autopsies. So they looked at 22 different people that had died with a diagnosis of COVID-19, and they found that viral RNA was throughout their system. Uh, and this comes back, I guess, to what we were talking about earlier with the Kawasaki-like disease in children. In these adults, uh, mostly older adults, there's virus RNA found in the lungs, the pharynx, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, even the brain and the blood, fairly infrequently in those last few, Mm -hmm. but still found, and viral proteins found in the kidney in particular. So this virus does get around in people that are obviously very sick, they go on to die, um, and viral RNA, we assume, is a, is a uh, a signal for infectious virus as well. So quite widespread body-wide infection which i found really interesting and concerning mm. is that how is that in compared if we you know do compare that to flu cold and other um coronavirus that we've seen in the last decade say how does that compare uh 
Well, I'll probably go with the easiest one. The common cold ones, which we tend to think of as wimpy viruses, can also end up in the blood uh, and they can end up around the body as well if you have a severe enough infection. So the viral levels get up in your lungs and they cross those barriers and get into the blood system and circulate around your body. So it's not unusual. When I said before, I was concerned it's it's a new virus. So these are all things that we're learning yeah. with SARS-CoV-2. But we do know this happens with other viruses as well if mm-hmm. disease is bad enough. And was that part of the study, um, one thing that was going to be part of um, a silly story that I brought up, but I, I read a headline that, um, in I think it was in China, that they found some of the virus left over in semen. Yes, so there are receptors in uh, the male reproductive system, I believe also in the female reproductive system, receptors for this virus. And just because a receptor's there doesn't mean the virus is able to replicate. But in this instance, it looks like there can be some replication or at least some leftover virus uh, and that can be detected in semen. Mm-hmm. Probably not a big surprise that that's the case. I doubt that this means it's an STD. Yeah. Uh, and I also don't think this will be a major route of transmission to the respiratory tract. But mm. it is interesting to uh, to have found that, yeah. Well, that was going to be my question. Does that mean, you know, if it is in the blood in other areas, can it be transmitted via things that aren't droplets or, you know, from the lungs? The, we, we never say never again. I think mm. I might have said this last time, but uh, it's probably pretty unlikely that we're going to see that sort of transmission. We don't know that it uh, transmits from semen in a sexual way. We really wouldn't expect it to transmit to the respiratory tract. Um, in most cases. And if it did, I'd say that would be a very, very rare event. Mm-hmm. Well, Ian, uh, now is the time for our segment. Well, that's silly. Uh, with so much information, misinformation and conspiracy out there, um, we like to talk about an item we found this week that tickles us. And um, this week, mine does not include Donny Trump. Um, <laughs> my one is the the idea that um, llama antibodies or llamas, the kind of goofy, almost giraffe slash donkey looking things could be the key to defeating COVID. Um, Jason McClellan from the University of Texas, he's a co-author of a new study that said, this is one of the first antibodies known to neutralize SARS-CoV-2. The research is built on previous research from four years ago in which they found that antibodies from a then nine-month-old llama named Winter were able to neutralize both SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV viruses over six weeks. And... um, I've subsequently found that llama antibodies have been used in work related to HIV and influenza, where they help to discover promising therapies. Um, Thoughts on that, Ian? Um, It's good that we know the llama's name. Uh, I think this is good. We we can get these antibodies from from other than humans, I guess. And and while we've seen that convalescent serum, uh, so serum from patients, human patients that have recovered, may be useful for treatment in patients that are newly infected, uh, and we know that works, there's probably a limit to how much blood we can take out of a previously infected human Mm. with animals we can keep reinfecting or or challenging and getting high antibody levels and using it that way also llama antibodies are interesting they're quite small and they can connect quite well to small parts of the virus so that makes them a bit novel in the antibody world uh so there's a couple of good things there i guess a a larger animal uh, novel binding and lots of serum to use perhaps for a treatment Mm. and does that um, at all help in a search for a vaccination or just treatment just treatment okay and um, Ian, yourself, did you find anything a bit silly or interesting this week? Well, I've been a little bit buried in amongst uh, conspiracy theories this last week and, and being hammered on the social media pipes about them. So in particular yeah. about the origin of the virus and about SARS-CoV-2. One particular thing, perhaps more macabre than funny, is somebody believes that a Chinese scientist has created one of the viruses, one of the most closely related viruses called RATG13 or RATG13. It's a bat coronavirus, very closely related to SARS-CoV-2. But this particular theory goes that somebody just created it, not created it in a lab, 
but literally typed in the letters of the genetic sequence and submitted that to a genetic sequence database and said that was the virus. Really quite crazy and out there. Um, gave me a few laughs, and then I realized these people, and there were a few of them, were serious. One of the more rare conspiracy theories, but there's some great ones out there, that's for sure. Yeah, I think that one, along with 5G, um, everyone's okay with 3G <laughs> and 4G, but 5G is the one that's going to get us, everyone. Um, well, look, Ian, once again, thanks for joining us. Um, and uh, yeah, talking about some conspiracy theories. A pleasure as always. You can check Ian's work and thoughts out at virologydownunder.com. Thank you for listening.